Amen. Hey, you guys can take a seat. Wow. That's some good news, right? That we can't stop God's love. Hey, I just want to do that thing I, I, I like to do, that repeat back. I've actually been doing this for about 20 years. I heard it at a middle school conference very first time in, in Florida. Drove a group down from Georgia. And that, that I matter to God thing, you know. And, and uh, um, I want, we're going to repeat back. And if you do it loud enough, we can move on. But really believe it when you say it, right? And because you really do matter to God. Sometimes we don't feel like we matter to people, right? You know, to our husbands, our spouse, to our kids, to the world, even to ourselves. But we always matter to God. You guys ready? You ready? We got visiting. We're glad you're here. And you guys that have been here, let's show them, right? Let's show them how it's done, right? Let's show them the Grove way of repeat backs. You ready? I matter. I matter. I matter. To God. And that's all, and that's all. That, matters that matters to me. To me. Amen. You matter to God this morning. You matter to God every day, every single day of your lives. Uh, Maple Grove, I just want to ask you, are you ready to open up and to dig into God's Word this morning? Amen. Amen. Good. All right. You're doing well. Congratulations. All right. You know, I hope you are because, you know, like, what does this guy want from us, man? I don't know. Okay. But, like, this book is, it's, it's alive. And it's active, and, and it's sharper than a double-edged sword, and it penetrates the dividing joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and it, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. And we're in this series uh, for the summer, and it's just been great. Um, that summer may continue for a whole year, maybe, <laughs> not really, but it, it's called Heroes, you know, Amazing Stories of Faith. And e- each week, one of the heroes, one of the great cloud of witnesses that surround us has stepped out of the stands and has jogged the lap with us and kind of encouraged us and challenged us with their life. And so far in the series, we've met Noah, you know, a dad who saved his family. Uh, We met a guy named Moses who, like us, was called to be a deliverer. We met Daniel, a, a guy who remained faithful in a pagan environment for 70 plus years and he was so faithful that he impacted two empires and literally shut the mouths of lions. Well, we met Ruth, a, a hero who taught us about redemption. We, we met a guy named Gideon who was a very unlikely hero who won a very unlikely victory. We, we met a guy named David who taught us how we can slay the giants in our life. And then last week we taught about, we, we learned about a guy named, a hero named Elijah who challenged us to throw down all our idols and to follow God with all our heart, all our soul, all our minds, and all our strength. And this morning, we're going to jog another lap with David. I mean, David texted me this week. He said, you know what, Steve? You know, I, I like, if I could talk to your people one more time, it'd be great. And so, I mean, he's a pretty cool guy. He's a warrior. I didn't want to get my head cut off. So I said, sure. And, and so David wants to share something with us this morning. And, and uh, and just a heads up, it's a PG chapter of David's life. Um, it's about David's sin with Bathsheba. So if you have younger kids with you, you may want to be prepared to answer some questions. Um, and don't send them to me because I'll just send them right back to you, all right? Uh, but I'll just give you a heads up. And uh, now a few weeks back, like I said, we looked at David and it was probably one of his most well-known events, right? This one-on-one contest with the giant Goliath where David taught us how we can slay the giants in their life. Not, not, not giant people, but giant problems and issues. And, and David said the way we do that, right, he says, first of all, we have to face our giants. 
And to do that, we have to overcome our fear, overcome the naysayers, and overcome our tendency to procrastinate, right? Giants only get bigger after time. And David also said, hey, if you want to defeat your giants, you have to visualize a reward. You have to imagine what your life would be like if that giant, if that issue, if that problem wasn't taunting you every day, keeping you from the life that God created you to live. And David also said that in order, to, in order for us to defeat our giant, we need to anchor our hope not in ourselves, not in our ability or anywhere else, but anchor our hope and confidence in God. We need a big God. See, to David, what mattered was not the size of his giant, but the size of his God, and David had a really big God. And before David went back into the stands, he, he looked us in the eye and he says, hey, if you want to be God, you need to do two things. You know, remember your past victories. Remember the time in your life where God showed up and did something. And remember the past victories of the great people of the Bible. Remember the past victories of people that you know. And then, he, then he's almost in the stands. He goes, and if you want to have a big God, you have to pursue a deep relationship with him, right? Christianity is not about knowing facts about God, right? It's not about winning a Bible trivia contest, right? But it's about knowing God. The more you know God, the more you trust God, the more you realize how big and awesome he is. And it was so great to watch that giant fall in David's life. And it's going to be great to watch the giant fall in our lives as well. Yeah, the picture of David in the first three quarters of his life is pretty amazing. A skilled soldier, a loyal friend, a, 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 a faithful son, a servant's heart, a great king, and an extremely passionate worshiper and follower of God. However, the fourth and final quarter of David's life isn't so good. It wasn't so noble. It, it, it's not as, as God-honoring. It was full of lies and secrets and scandals and conspiracies. In fact, it was a train wreck. A train wreck that resulted in his family going down in flames in every imaginable way. And listen, most of the stuff that David went through, the difficulties during that time, were of his own making. Um, maybe his son was thinking of him, Solomon, thinking of his own dad when he wrote these words. People ruining their lives by their own foolishness, and then what? Then I go, God. Like, there we go, take to God. We do stupid stuff, right? And then we get mad at God. But understand, this is one thing that David never did. He never once blames God. Like I said, powerful truths about defeating our giants. But I think this morning in this event in David's life is going to help you and I defeat an even bigger giant. You know, when I step into this chapter of David's life, I'm, I'm so glad that God stopped writing Scripture 2,000 years ago. I mean, who in this room would want to have their sins and failures recorded for all generations to read, discuss, and write books on? I mean, couldn't you imagine? You know, I'm still right. Go, hey, let me tell you where Steve really screwed up. Man, he is such a sinner. Look at this mess up he did. Look, I mean, I'm so glad I'm not in there, Right? For, for, for messing up. Yet no sin other than Adam and Eve has received more press than this one, David's sin with Bathsheba. Uh, would you pray with me? Uh, Father God, we love you. God, you reign alone. Uh, this is your house. We are your people. God, we believe in your word that it's true, that it's powerful, uh, that it accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. And God, we know we are finite and fallen and frail and messed up. 
And God, we come before you open and honest and ask you to speak into our lives. God, help us to break down any walls between us and you, any barriers, barriers between us accepting your truth. God, I pray that we come with open hearts, open minds, open eyes, and good, fertile soil. And God, I ask you to enable me to speak your word in a way that brings you honor and glory and help me to hear it as well um, because I'm pretty messed up. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, first, the story, Act 1, I call the sin. As chapters 11, as chapter 11 of 2 Samuel opens up, David is probably between the ages of 50 and 60. And over the years, he's distinguished himself as a great man of God, as a faithful shepherd, as a valiant warrior on the battlefield, as a great leader of God's people, and an incredible psalm writer. I mean, he, he is like the Hillsong, Bethel, and David Crowder, right, you know, of that time, but only better. So understand, as we look at this segment in David's life, we're not examining the life of some wild, lifelong rebel, but rather a guy who just really messed up and who fell into a period of sin that had devastating consequences for his life, for his family, and for the nation. You see, David is the, is the poster guy for this truth. And hear this truth, brothers and sisters. Sin always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you were expecting to pay. Get it? Good. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent out Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And notice that David stayed home when he should have been out doing battle for the Lord. Now, understand, if David had gone where he should have gone and done what he should have done, uh, these chapters in his life could have been avoided. And hey, isn't this, isn't this when we get ourselves in trouble as well? When we're not doing the things we should be doing? When we're not going where we should be going? When we're not with the people we should be with? You see, it's, it's these times that you and I are very susceptible to sin and temptation. Yeah, one day David woke up and decided not to go where he was supposed to go. And instead he went where his desires wanted to go. And listen, Satan had been waiting for decades to mess this guy up. But understand, David did not fall suddenly. No, some chinks in his armor had already began to form in the spiritual armor years earlier. You see, deep strongholds most often begin with strong footholds. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we see this formation of a very costly foothold take root in David's life. David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. I mean, David knows, hey, you know what? It's all about God. It's all from God. God did this. In other words, David's feeling pretty good right now, right? God is good. Things are good. And I am good. Very next verse. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. It says that he took more, which 
means that he already had a bunch of wives and concubines. And basically a concubine was an almost wife. But listen, even though it may have been the cultural norm for kings to have many wives, it was forbidden by God. In Deuteronomy 17, God is talking to Moses and talking about, hey, here's the kind of king that I want to lead my nation. In verse 17, he says this, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. I mean, that, that's pretty clear, right? Hey, don't take many wives or your heart will be led astray. And that's exactly what happened to David. His heart was led astray. It, it drifted from God. It drifted from God's ways. I understand that there's a lot of things that our society, that our culture says are okay, that our culture says are perfectly fine to do, to be, and to participate in, that God's Word says are not okay. And that is where the rubber meets the road for us as believers, right? Who will we listen to? Where will we get our values and our beliefs and our idea of what is right and what is wrong? Right? Will we get them from the Creator, or will we get them from His creation? Peter writes, for all people are like grass and all their glory. And many people through the ages have looked pretty glorious, right? Even today, right? You look at these people like you read some crazy stuff happened in the stock market, and you find, hey, the guy that is over Twitter, his, his net worth went up $3.2 billion. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's just, we can't even fathom, right? Some lives look pretty glorious. For all people like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord does what? Endures forever. Romans 3, 4. Let God be true and every human being a liar. In other words, when there is a conflict, between what an infinite, infallible, always existing, all-powerful, holy God says, right? When there's a conflict between what an infinite, infallible, always existing, all-powerful, holy God says, and what finite, fallen human, human being says, what culture says, go with God. Go with God. Trust God. I, I, I understand for those of us who claim to follow Christ, you know, it's not the opinions of people or of culture that is to be our ultimate and final authority, but the Word of God, right? As people of God, right, the final authority is to be God's Word. Listen, the truth is that opinions, people's opinions and cultures and philosophies and values, they come and they go, but God's Word endorse forever. I, I, I mean, for me, it just makes sense to anchor my life to the words of a God who was and is and always will be, right? Rather than to anchor my life to the, to the opinions and concepts of people living in the year 2016, right? The pundits on TV or something like that, right? It, it makes more sense. I, I think I'll link up with God because a lot of what our culture says is okay is just plain wrong. Here's a prime example. I want to show you a picture here. Anybody know who that is? Kenley Grace Akasella, right? Born 23 weeks premature. And I think she was 13 ounces when she was born. Uh, that's her dad's hand there. I mean, 
That's how little she was. Our culture says that if Shelly wanted to, she could have killed that baby in her womb. God says that's wrong. That's not about a woman's choice. That's God's life. Amen? That's God's life. And I think this little girl would agree with me. That's Kinley today with her dad. I think she would agree, right? Yeah, I think that was a good idea that my mom didn't kill me, right? That, that, that I'm alive. I mean, she is so, every time I see her, they were here over the summer, just stopped in for like about five minutes. You know, she is so full of life. And she's just a miracle that she survived from 23 weeks old, right? And she's beautiful, man. And, and, and I see her, what a miracle she is. What a testimony to God. You see, many, many times our culture is just wrong. But Jesus and his word is always right. Now, it's not always easy, right? What Jesus says isn't always easy, but it's always right. You know, one of my new favorite people and authors is Bo Chancey, uh, Pray for One uh, guy. And, and I'm reading one of his books, Light Me on Fire. And, and I, here's a quote from that book. It's hard to follow Jesus. He doesn't go where we want to go. He never takes the easy way. He always takes that blasted high road that expects us to keep up with him. You, you know, as a pastor, I think the greatest threat to the mission of Christ in our country is the growing disregard and disrespect for the authority of God's word among God's people, right? I, I don't care if the world respects and disregards this book. See, the threat to our mission is that too many times we disrespect and disregard this book. I mean, is the Bible the authority in our life or not, right? I mean, we stick it on our banner as a core value, whoop de doo right? It's on a banner, it looks pretty good, right? But is it here, right? Is it there? Brothers and sisters, is the Word of God the authority in your life? Is God's Word the final authority on how you use your tongue, on how you love your spouse, on how you handle your money and spend your time? on how much you give back to his church? Is God's word the final authority on how you deal with conflict? On how you respond to hurt? Is God's word the final authority on how you treat your enemies, those who hate you and curse you and want to see your life all messed up? Like I said, Jesus' path is not the easy path. I read this morning in Romans 12, I was behind, but Sunday is the catch-up day. And it's like, seriously, Jesus, you tick me off. Uh, uh, bless those who persecute you. Pray that God will bless them. That's not easy. I've got to be honest. That's not easy for me. Sometimes I want to pray, God, hit them with a freight train. And then park on top of them. I'm just being honest, right? That's in the flesh. But you know what God says? I, I'm supposed to pray to bless them. I, I've been trying to do that. And it's, hard. I got, it's hard for me. It may be easy for you. It's difficult for me. But to pray, God, I want you to bless their lives. I want good things to come into their life. That is hard. But that's the Jesus way, right? It's not easy, but it's also the best way. And, and it's God's word, the final authority on what should be the number one most important thing in your life. Right? It's on our wall, right? Pray for one. We have one job. It, it doesn't matter that I'm in here, up in here preaching, right? If I'm not reaching out to people who are far from Christ. Big deal. Put together a sermon. You guys listen to me, right? Maybe you filled out an outline. Woo! Yeah. You know, maybe you put on my Facebook yeah, or something. 
that doesn't matter. What matter? Am I reaching people who are lost, right? I just want to encourage you guys, continue to pray for one. You know, do you have a one? If you have a one, I want to encourage you to, you know, to, you, you can write their name on your connection card so we can pray. It's the leadership and staff that we can pray for your one, right? Um, you know, I have a one. I'm not really going to put his name out there, uh, you know, but, you know, we met just this Monday, and he's not ready to come to church yet. He, he doesn't really trust, trust church. Didn't, didn't really trust me, but now he's starting to trust me a little bit. And we hung out for two hours on Monday, and he wants to meet a couple times a month. I go, he goes, I hope I'm not taking up too much of your time. I go, dude, this is life to me, man. You know, there's nothing I'd rather do. You got questions. We're just hanging out talking about God. This is, this is food for my soul. I want to encourage you to write that name down. If you haven't signed up yet on your connection card, right, for that text reminder, you know, you know, you get that during the day, you go, oh, dang, I thought today was about me making money or closing this deal or being mad at this person. You know, well, actually, the day is about me reaching somebody who's lost. I got to tell you, it, it always hits me at the right time. You know, is the Word of God the authority in our lives? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Do not copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. You do that by filling your mind with God's truth. Then you learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Question, why do you think David kept adding to his harem? Was it because he wanted more kids, more college tuition, more mother-in-laws? <laughs> if I was a betting man, I'd just think he wanted to be with more women, right? Maybe we'll go, listen, listen. In David's life, we see an important lesson about sexuality and about the nature of lust for anything in the world that is outside the boundaries of God's word. More is not the answer, right? It's not the answer. I mean, David already had a bunch of wives and concubines, and it still wasn't enough, all right? Understand, when it comes to lust for anything, more power, more money, more stuff, more fame. It's not the answer, okay? I'm just telling you right now. You may get more money and more stuff and more applause and more prestige and more popularity, but it'll never be enough. Get it? Good. Turn to your person to your right left and say, more is not the answer. It's not the answer. Uh, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace, and yeah, he knew where he was going, and yeah, he knew what he was going to see. From the roof, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Maple Grove, when the Bible says a woman is beautiful, it means it. Listen, rarely will Scripture include the word very, and when it does, you can be sure that Sheba was physically attractive beyond description. Now, now I read this, and I wonder did Bathsheba knowingly put herself in a place where she could be seen? I mean, she knows who lives right next door. She knows whose roof, roof overlooks her bathing area. Sure, David may have had his issue with lust and is the bigger sinner, but listen, Bathsheba, a very, a very beautiful woman, bathing pretty much in his backyard, did not help the guy out that much, all right? I'm just saying. Bottom line, if she wasn't out there taking a bath in front of David, he would not have sinned. I mean, before that fateful night, David didn't even know who she was. I understand, it's not enough 
to simply avoid sin ourselves, the New Testament teaches that we're, we must show that we do not become a stumbling block to other people. Romans 14, 13 says, decide to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble. If David had gone to war, he would not have seen Bathsheba that night. And if she had thought seriously about her actions, she would not have put temptation in his path. Now, I feel the need to say something here, and it may not win me many friends, um, but anyhow, uh, ladies, uh, when you dress, dress in a way that shows too much skin, you know, like just, just, just too much, too much, you're not helping your brother out that much, all right? You guys are guys, all right? Let me just tell you, guys are guys, all right? That is why Paul wrote these words about ladies helping their brothers out. I want you to dress, I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves. First Timothy 2.9. Yeah. Enough, enough said. Hope I didn't lose too many of my women today. Okay, David's on the rooftop when he should have been doing battle for the king. Battle, his job as a king. He saw Bathsheba, and he should have turned around and walked away and found satisfaction in one of his other wives or concubines, but he didn't. So David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now that seems like an odd way to tell David her name, right? Like, like who is that person over there? Well, that's, that's Laurie, the daughter of Dale Martin, Right? You know, the wife of Steve the pastor, right? That's kind of weird. But you see, this unnamed servant knows exactly what is going on here, and he's, he's seen David make his moves on women before, so he's trying to give David a subtle warning. Who is this beautiful woman that you're lusting after? Well, well David, um, she's, the, she's the daughter of Iliam, one of your generals, one of your trusted warriors, one of your friends, David, one of your 30. See, David had what's called the 30. It's listed in 2 Samuel 23, 30 of his most valiant, trusted friends and warriors. So this guy says, hey, she's the daughter of one of your friends. You know, an older guy making moves with the daughter of his friend is just plain creepy, all right? I'm just saying, that is creepy, and it's wrong in just so many ways. And then he goes, and, and my king, by the way, also... She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who's also one of the 30, who's also one of your trusted warriors and generals. And he was a Hittite, and he came and left his country and left everything because he loves you and he's loyal to, he's loyal to you. See, oftentimes before we jump off the cliff into a sin, and all its consequences, God usually gives us one last warning and way of escape. And this guy is trying to warn David. David, 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 you're not thinking clearly, you know? David, wake up, wake up. That kind of hurt. Um, got injured. Workman's comp, right? Okay, you got hurt. That hurt. David, wake up. Oftentimes, before we jump off the cliff into a sin and all its consequences, God usually gives us one last warning and way of escape. We've got this great promise in 1 Corinthians 10, right? The temptations in your life are no different than what others experienced. And God is faithful. 
He'll not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure. That's a great promise for Christians, right? What it's saying is that, that there, see, there's some temptations the devil could throw at me. I am toast. I am done in a nanosecond, right? I'm giving in, and it's all over, right? You know what? But God says, not going to happen. No, you can't tempt Steve that way. You can't tempt them that way. I'm not going to let you do it. You know, so anything that comes my way, God protects me, right? And, and, and he provides a way out. And this guy's trying to give David a way out. I understand before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, an angel came to light and told them to get out. You know, God sent Jonah to Nineveh to say, hey, God, you guys got 40 days to repent or I'm going to level the place. Right? God loves to warn his people. Always provides a way out. Always opens up his arms because he wants his people to come back to him. I mean, we just read this week in, in Romans 10, 21, this picture of God, it's so beautiful, but the response of his people is so not beautiful. But regarding Israel, God said, all day long, I open my arms to them. All day long. I love you. I want you. Yeah, you're screwed up. Yeah, you're messed up. Yeah, you messed up again. Yeah, you keep turning away from me. But I want you. I want you back. I want you back. But they were disobedient and rebellious. Now, may I be so bold to say that maybe the event in David's life is your warning from God. A warning that you're on the cliff of a huge mistake. And this morning, God is reaching out to you, telling you, don't do it. Don't go there. Stop doing that. Stop thinking that. Walk away. Walk away. Walk away. While you still can. Well, David didn't walk away. You know, he ignored the warning. You see, for him, it was too late. And you ask, what was he thinking? He wasn't. <laughs> That's the problem. He wasn't thinking. He was feeling, right? You know? That's what we do, right? Well, I, I, I feel like experiencing this. I feel like doing this thing. Or I don't feel like forgiving. I, I don't feel like moving on, right? David wasn't thinking. He, 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 he was feeling. And David sent his messenger to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. And, and I'm sure they had a, a great time together. I mean, sin is usually fun, right? That's why we do it. I mean, we wouldn't sin if it wasn't fun. Then she went back home, probably under cover of darkness, so nobody would know. I mean, hey, uh, who has the right to judge with two consenting adults? Do behind closed doors. No one, except God's word. I mean, no one really got hurt. Again, that's what culture says. Uh, but listen, there are very, there are rarely clean getaways when it comes to breaking God's moral law. See, the truth is, we, we don't break God's moral law. God's moral law breaks us. And the reason being is you and I are creating the very image of God, therefore God's moral law, we're, make, we're creating God's image, therefore his moral law is woven into our inner being. And we can deny it, but it's still woven deeply into who we really are. And when we break God's moral law, what we find out is that we we reap what we sow, we reap more than we sow, and we reap later than we sow. And that's the problem, right? Because it doesn't happen right away. It's like, oh I, oh, I didn't get in trouble for that. I picked that piece of paper up. I'm good. 
well, maybe you're not so good. Maybe it's coming later, right? But it doesn't happen right when we do it, so we think we're okay. Charles Wendell said it this way, really good. It's been my observation over the years that the devil never tips his hand in temptation. He shows you only the beauty, the ecstasy, the fun, the excitement, and the stimulating adventure of stolen desires. But he never tells the heavy drinker, tomorrow there'll be a hangover. Ultimately, you'll ruin your family. He never tells the drug user early on, this is the beginning of a long, sorrowful, dead-end road. He, he never tells the thief, you're going to get caught, friend. You do this, you'll wind up behind bars. He certainly doesn't tell the adulterer, you know, pregnancy is a real possibility or you could get a life-threatening disease. Are you kidding? Face it. When the sin is done and all the penalties that sin, of that sin come due, the devil is nowhere to be found. He smiles as you fall believes with no encouragement when the consequences kick in. And I might add, accept the text and call you and tell you about all your guilt <laughs> and all your shame. Now for David, the painful reaping began three to four weeks after the incredible night of ecstasy. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And those are three words that someone engaging in sex outside God's design never wants to hear. Yes, we have free will and we can choose to do whatever we want. God gives us that freedom. But once we sown, we don't get to choose the size or the yield of our harvest. Get it? Good. Act two is the cover-ups. Now, David, when he finds us out, his first reaction maybe is like ours, i got to cover this thing up. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent to David, Sent him to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked him how Joab was doing, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going on. You think he really cared? He didn't care. Yeah. He just wanted Uriah to come home, sleep with his wife, so everyone would think that the baby was his. That's like a good plan, right? I mean, there's no DNA testing, right? Yeah, the baby may be born early, may not totally look like him, but no one would suspect the thing, certainly not suspect David. The David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and, and a gift from the king was sent after him. And David's like, that was close, but I think we're good. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And here's where we begin to see the incredible character of this man. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As sure as you live, I will not do such a thing. So David goes to plan B. And David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So I remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. David made him drunk. When even Uriah went to sleep on his mat among the king's servant, he did not go home. Yeah, you're right. At this time, he, he's showing more character drunk, right, than David showed sober. So David go, okay, plan C. So David sits down and writes a letter to his general Joab. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. His friend. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. David seals the letter hands it to Uriah, because he knows Uriah won't open it up. I mean, Uriah is carrying his own death warrant in his hand. And Joab obeys these orders, and uh, no doubt it changed his view of his commander-in-chief. 
And the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us, came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archer shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told his messengers, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. What a dog. And notice, not only did Uriah die, but so did a bunch of other soldiers. Uh, understand, uh, uh, other, other wives lost their husbands. Other parents lost their sons. Uh, other children were forced to grow up without their dads, all because of David trying to cover up his sin. And brothers and sisters, such is the ripple effect of our sins. And David is like, wow, this is tougher than I thought, but it's done, it's over, I can move on. But listen, if we think David was free and clear, living large, we could not be more wrong. Uh, understand this sin, though hidden in the secret. You got any of those? The sin that was hidden in secret was killing him. It was tearing him up from the inside out. Years later, he would write in Psalm 32, when I refused to confess my sin, a body wasted away, and I groaned all day long, day and night. Your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Ever been there? Man, you're doing something wrong. You're just not going to own it, not going to omit it, and, and your, your, your strength is evaporating like water in the summer heat. Act three is confrontations and consequences. Uh, about a year later, uh, the son born to David and Bathsheba is a couple months old, God sends a prophet uh, to David by the name of Nathan. Nathan was a trusted friend. And Nathan comes in, talks to the king, and after some small talk says, hey, king, I need some advice. You know, uh, in, in the city, there, there, there's, a, there's a rich man and, and there's a poor man, and, 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 the, and the rich man has hundreds of cattle and sheep, and the poor man just has one, one lamb. You know, and, and it's not even like a pet. It's like a member of the family. Uh, this lamb eats from his table and even falls asleep in his arms. And king, I got to tell you what happened. This rich man was going to throw a feast, and, and instead of sacrificing one of his hundreds of, of animals, he took from that poor man the one lamb that he had, and he killed it and gave it to his guests. David burned with anger against the man. Have you noticed that we tend to burn with anger over the very sins we ourselves are committing, right? As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. I guess he's going to kill him four times. Because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the man. Then Nathan revealed to David the consequences and he would suffer. And there would be many. I, I, I mean, you can read them yourself. Basically, David's household became like an MTV reality show on steroids, right? There were terrible consequences. And, and understand, David, as he jogs his lot with you, wants you to know, wants me to know, that the pain of reaping always exceeds the pleasure of sowing. Always. When you're talking about sin, always, always exceeds. Act for confession and restoration. I mean, David's caught, he's confronted by Nathan. And, and I mean, and, 
you'd be thinking, okay, now it's time for plan D, right? <laughs> I'm taking out Nathan, right? Take out this prophet. No one needs to know. But that's not how he responds. When he hears, you are the man, David simply says six words. 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And I think it felt good. <laughs> I think it felt freeing to acknowledge it and to let it go. And then Nathan responded with seven words. The Lord has taken away your sin. You see how quickly he was forgiven? Listen, listen. Authentic repentance leads to automatic, immediate, complete forgiveness. Now, is that good news or what? Tell the person to your right and left, that's good news. It's good news. Authentic repentance leads to automatic, immediate, complete forgiveness. Wow, our God, he's so good. He's so merciful. Our God is so full of it, right? He's so full of grace. Amen? Listen, there is no sin beyond restoration. But neither is it without consequences, right? But because of doing this, you're shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. Question, how can you be a man after God's own heart, be a hero, <laughs> commit adultery with one of your best friend's daughters and, and most loyal servant's wife, then murder him <laughs> and murder a bunch of other people as you try to cover it up? Uh, uh, understand, it's not the sin that we commit, but our response to that sin. And remember, a thousand years later in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, when the Holy Spirit is reviewing David's life, he inspires Luke to write this. God testified concerning him, David, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who'll do everything I wanted him to do. Wanted him to do. I understand, a thousand years on the other side of that sin, God could have revised it, God could have redefined it, God could have, have clarified it, but he didn't. Such is the wonder, the power, the beauty, the glory, the amazingness of God's mercy and grace. Amen? Now, now when you read the Old Testament, you'll find that King Saul did a whole lot, did more things, did, did half as much as David, right? Didn't do as many things as worse. I'm not even saying it the right way, okay? He screwed up less than David. All right, there you go, okay? You know, um, but the deal with him was when he got confronted, all he did was point fingers. Well, the only reason I did wrong is because my, my troops took all the stuff. <laughs> only reason I offered that wrong sacrifice, Samuel, you were late, and I was afraid the troops were going to leave, right? But David, when he was confronted with his sin, Rather than pointing to other people, David bent his knee. And that's the difference. Sure, there are consequences, but no sin is beyond restoration. No sin is beyond restoration. You know, when we read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we're reading his biography. But, 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 but if you ever wanted to know how, how David felt when he got caught and confronted by Nathan, all you need to do is turn to Psalm 51. The heading of Psalm 51 is, For the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
I understand that David, man, he's confronted, and he gets on his knees, and he grabs, he grabs a pen and paper, no doubt weeping, and he writes one of the most powerful journal entries of all time. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you crush rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Oh, don't leave me, God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. This has been gone. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are my God and my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, O Lord, my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Powerful. Powerful. And now some four quick takeaways. I mean, you're almost through this, this lap with with David. He, I mean, he's got to hit the stands, and so you, you need to lean in because these are going to come pretty quick, all right? But, but here's the deal. I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that one of these takeaways is why God brought you here today, all right? One of these is yours, and I hope you take it, okay? Here's the first takeaway. And David, and David's looking at you. He'd say, oh, he'd say this. When tempted, run from it, right? Run from it. Don't play with it. Don't debate with it. Run from it. Run Forest, run, right? Run from that sucker, right? Run. Some of you need to run, right? Next takeaway is when you sin, own it. Don't point fingers. Don't blame somebody else for your sinful behavior and sinful choices. Simply own it. And when God offers forgiveness, accept it. Accept it. Listen, authentic repentance always leads to automatic, total, immediate, and complete forgiveness. Always. You know, there, there's this picture in, in Revelation 7. I was reading this this morning. And it, it, it's, we're going like, to be there. It's like where you and I are going to be standing one day. And, and, and there's this multitude that we, you can't even count for every tongue, tribe, and language. And they're all before the throne. And, and they're standing before the throne and, and before the Lamb. And they're wearing white robes because they've been washed clean, right? And, and, and they're waving palm branches in their hands. And, and it says that, that, that they 
are shouting with a great roar. Salvation comes from God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. I, I understand, salvation doesn't come from you. Doesn't come from what you do, right? It doesn't come from what you don't do. Salvation comes from God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Hey, would you guys stand up for a second? Okay, we're about to wrap this up, but we're going to stand the rest of the way through. Okay, but it, 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 I, we're doing a rehearsal because one day we're going to be in that multitude, right? And, and, and I want us to say this with a great roar, and, and then I'll give you the final takeaway, all right? On three, let's just say this three times with a great roar and just picture, you know, and, and maybe we'll be standing together, you know, and maybe I'll be like, hey, dude, you remember when we were sitting in church that day? And now we're in these white robes in heaven waving these palm branches, all right? So that's going to be cool. All right. Uh, on three, like a great roar. One, two, three. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Amen. And, and here... Here's the final takeaway that some of you need. It's the one I need more times than not. It's that, that, that when the new day dawns, walk in it, right? See, David didn't wallow in his sin. He didn't wallow in his guilt. Yeah, he had some consequences, but, it's, but he didn't roll over and play dead. He said, yeah, God, I know you won't let me build the temple, but there ain't nothing stopping me from making sure my son has everything he needs to build that temple. I'm telling you, if you're in Christ. Live in your freedom. Live in his mercy. Live in his grace. Live like redeemed people. Live like you're saved. Live like you're going to heaven. Live like you're forgiven. Walk in that freedom. Live out of that freedom. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray, and then every week we respond, and one of the ways we respond is just, man, let God work in your heart right now. And if you'd like to talk to me about your walk with God, you want to come up here and just pray, you can do that. Uh, we also take communion at this time, you know, to remember what Jesus did, to remember his broken body and his shed blood, how much he loves you. I mean, nothing could, the cross couldn't stop that love, right? Crown of thorns couldn't, the scourging couldn't, the nails couldn't, nothing could stop God's love for you. And every week we want to remember that. And we have those at the station, you just grab that and take it. You can take it out your seat, sit on the floor, huddle it with your family, whatever you want to do. We also, that's where we collect our offerings. We don't pass a plate. But that's where you put your gift into God so that we can continue the work here to bring him glory. And, and I'm going to pray. When I'm done praying, we'll just, just we'll respond. Uh, God, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you that salvation comes from your throne and from the Lamb. And God, I pray that right now you'll be with my brothers and sisters in this room who need to run. And I pray they run. I pray you be with my brothers and sisters who need to own and confess their sin, I pray they do that. And quit blaming other people. and Just own it so they can move on. And God, I, I pray for those who feel the guilt and shame of their sin. May they see your arms open wide with forgiveness and accept it. And God, for those of us who Satan beats down with guilt and shame, even though we're forgiven, I pray we don't live for grace, we live from grace. We don't live for your mercy, we live from your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.